0: Thank you, choir, for lifting our hearts to the Lord and warming our hearts toward Him. I want to express thanks to J.D. Crowley for wrapping up the final verses of our study. In 1 John last week, we got to watch via live stream, and I thought it was just a tremendously helpful message. And if you missed it, maybe you were traveling or ill or for whatever reason you missed it, I would encourage you to uh, you can go to our website and look it up and listen to it. I'm, I'm thinking I want to hear it again. It was just so, very helpful. Um, the next two Sundays, uh, Paul Bixby will be taking us through the, the little epistle of Second John. So that's what's coming next. Uh, so we're going to do second and third John, um, and then uh, comes the next series in First and Second Thessalonians uh, that is to come. But that, that'll be later in the summer. So, that's what's coming up. Um, So, today, after devoting 19 Sunday mornings to the epistle of 1 John, I think it's fitting for us to ask ourselves what we should do with what we've learned. The theme of our study in 1 John has been that you may know, drawn from the epistle itself, obviously. It was the aged apostles' strategic response to the Antichrist teachings already making inroads into the first century church. Arrogant false teachers were claiming a higher knowledge that called for modifying the gospel from what Christ and the apostles had taught. Varieties of falsehood have swirled through the centuries that followed, but their pattern is actually much the same. Vaunted claims to have a better perspective on truth. Diminishing of scriptural authority, modifying of the gospel message to suit whatever is passing for superior insight, catering to the appetites and philosophies of the times, these are clear and present dangers to this very day. And genuine Christians must must be vigilant, they must be able to discern the errors and to hold fast to the gospel truth. So, after 19 messages, we might well say, okay, we know. (laughs) But what now? What difference should it make for us? So, in this 20th message on 1 John, we want to answer that so what question. John gives many reasons for writing this epistle throughout the book, And that, you may know, shows up over and over again. But at the beginning, he gives the reason that he wants us to know. I remind you what he said in 1 John 1, 3, and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things... So that our joy may be complete. The apostles' proclamation of the gospel was firsthand eyewitness testimony to the real historical Jesus, who he is and what he did. Trusting the gospel that they proclaimed brings a person into fellowship with the apostles and with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is defined as to share or to have in common. So we enter into the, the experience that the apostles who knew Jesus face to face, the experience that they had, and we, we enter into a relationship not only with them, but with God Himself. This is a fellowship of proclaiming and receiving the gospel, and it makes our joy complete. And when he says our joy complete, it refers not just to the joy of the apostles, or to the joy of the but to the joy of the entire Christian community both those proclaiming the gospel and those receiving it we enjoy it together hence the title for this morning living the fellowship of joy reflections on 1 John this is the so what or the what now of what we've learned on our journey through this epistle And as we travel on from here, my prayer is that we would live the fellowship of joy. And my goal this morning is to kind of nail down components of that joy so that you and I can take it from here and run with it. Living the fellowship of joy involves the joy of certainty, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of divine life, the joy of abiding, the joy of loyal obedience, the joy of love, and the joy of confidence. I guess it's fitting that we have seven, since it's supposed to be joy that's complete, and we'll see if I can complete it by the time the time is up. So, join with me on this journey of joy. First, the joy of certainty, knowing for sure that the gospel is true. John starts with this theme, and it's foundational. Everything depends on it. If you throw out this component, you have nothing. If it's foundation, and you establish this, you have everything. He starts the book this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. It, it was revealed, shined, it shone out to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The first hand eyewitness experiences of the apostles and their contemporaries verify the historical reality of Jesus Christ and the good news that He came to bring us. John starts the epistle this way, and he reiterates the gospel's historicity and reliability toward the end of the epistle. We saw this just a few weeks ago. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And you recall that that refers to the historical events of Jesus' life, His baptism, and His crucifixion, both of which had eyewitnesses, both of which displayed that that He is God's Son. And then beyond that, the Spirit of God has testified. The Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. So, you recall, that you have these historical events that were witnessed by the apostles and by many others, and then you also have the Spirit of God who indwells believers and who preaches to the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, who verifies, who also testifies to the reality of these events and their significance. If we receive the testimony of men, verse 9, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Notice some underlying testimony, testify. It's just bearing witness. It's the word we get martyr from. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. That's through the Spirit. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not just in the future. Right now, a gift from God. So, what we see, this is the pattern that we see, and this is the way the gospel works in every person who's ever been born again, every person that's rescued by Jesus. There is testimony, and this is like testimony in court it's verified, it's reliable, it's eyewitness, it's firsthand. That then gives us a basis for our faith. Christian faith is never a leap in the dark, Christian faith is relying on reliable testimony. We're counting God to be true. We're counting the apostles and the prophets to be truthful in what they testified. We're putting our faith, our reliance on that, and when we do, we receive eternal life. This is the way the gospel works. So, to say you can't know, which is what agnosticism, you see the A in front and then gnostic. Gnostic means to know. A means you don't know or you can't know. To say you can't know requires ignoring or rejecting the testimony that has been presented, and it is the testimony of God. In a postmodern world, it may sound humble and even wise to say that you can't know but given the testimony of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, along with that of the prophets and the apostles, it amounts to calling God a liar. It is not humble. It is arrogant because it's dismissive of the facts that have been presented. It is not wise. It is foolish, and it's rebellious. 1 John five twenty, 20. And we know... That the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. True, true, true. God never lies. We can know for sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true true, because He is true, and God is true, and the testimony about what Jesus has done is true. We have eternal life through Him, period. Now, as human beings, we naturally wrestle with doubt. Our feelings are fickle as the wind. There's so many sorrows, over the course of our life, so many foiled plans, so many disappointments, and all this experience in a broken world easily taints our faith. But you and I have to get our eyes and hearts off of what the curse has brought into our world and get our faith firmly planted in the bedrock of of reliable historical gospel testimony and build on that. You don't build a building without a foundation, but if you have a foundation, you don't build the building out in the backyard. You put the building on the foundation. So let this be your foundation. Don't ever move the foundation. Don't change what holds everything else up. Hold on to that. Whatever, however you grow, whatever you learn, keep it rooted with what you know to be true. Let this be the lens through which you perceive the world that you are living in. Let this be your north star that helps you navigate the surging seas of life. Let this be nailed down and and don't Don't leave it for anything because we have the joy of knowing that the gospel is true, the joy of certainty. This will bring you joy. I mean, part of the frustration of our world right now, the information age, is that you just don't know what's true anymore. You have a billion voices telling you this and that and the other, people absolutely convinced on polar opposite positions. And when you're trying to investigate and do your research, you know, we'll, we'll, people will use flamethrowers against other people for not doing their research. It all depends on what book you read. It all depends on what blog you read. It all depends on where your research was. So this becomes very difficult for us. It becomes very difficult to navigate a world where we really don't know for sure on most things what is actually true because we weren't there and we have to take it on the word of somebody else. Well, this is, this is something we know is true, and by that very nature, it brings us joy. We don't have to be agitated, angry, fearful because we know with everything else that's swirling around, we know this is true. Second, there's the joy of forgiveness. This is freedom from sin's guilt and stain. Now, what we found with John's teaching on sin is that it's not simplistic. It's realistic, and it's nuanced. False teachers minimize the significance of sin. John does not. It's huge. It's death-dealing. It's God-defying. It's Satan-glorifying. Other false teachers teach that they were free from sin, that they had arrived. John makes clear that sin plagues every one of us. He underscores that everyone, every one of us actively sins. And he declares that the only way to be forgiven and cleansed so that we can live righteously, comes by the power of God Himself. Listen to His words, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, in other words, we're saying the same thing about them God does, He is faithful and just, righteous, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful in others that he keeps his promises. He's just in that what Christ has paid, he will apply to our case. If we say we have not sinned, so we've gone from sin being part of who we are to, to actions of sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So then we're surprised to find in the next words in 1 John 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is what we mean, What I mean when I say John's teaching on sin is nuanced. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous, so His death on the cross for our sin was not to pay for His own sins but to pay for ours. He shed his blood to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. That's what propitiation is. And to this day, he advocates, he intercedes for us before the Father. He is our, he's our legal defense attorney. He is our mediator, our great high priest, as Hebrews has taught us. Further, every person in every place and in every time who trusts in Jesus receives this release from sin's guilt and power. No substitute will do. No so-called higher knowledge or mystical experience. No any kind of religion can be used to get there. Only Jesus. And that's why we have good news to spread to every ethnicity in the whole wide world. There is one gospel There is one way, and his name is Jesus. And the good news for every person on the planet is that trusting in him for cleansing from sin works because God does the work. You see, Jesus has accomplished this for you. It is not your doing. It never was. It is not your earnestness. It is not you're using the right words like you do the hocus pocus over it and your sin disappears. It's, It's not what you're doing. It's what God has done. This is the gospel. It's good news. It's not good advice. This is what God has done for you. Will you receive it? You must take hold of God's word on it. His promises, his faithfulness, forgiven, cleansed, No condemnation. You can't do that for yourself. You just can't. Now, I was thinking about this and how we try to gain release from the things that we've done wrong. When when people have gone through the experience of committing some crime and they have to go uh, to prison for it, and, and some of you have been through this experience and many of you have witnessed this, we, there's usually a sentence a particular time they go to prison there's certain payments that have to be made and and when that sentence is complete, what do we typically say? He or she has paid their debt to society. But let me ask you a question: Does that free them from their sense of guilt? You see, i I could never free myself from my sense of guilt if I spent a million years in prison. I, I can't cleanse my own heart. I can't, I can't make myself right before God who sees every particle of who I am and knows every motive and knows, knows everything about my sinning, public and private and what led to it, knows, knows my wiring. There's nothing I could pay to release me from the objective guilt of that or from the subjective burden of guilt. I, I, as a human being, cannot do that. I cannot pay my debt to society. I cannot pay my debt to God. I can't do it. And we carry that. And it, and it rips at our soul. But Jesus, Jesus paid your debt in full. So that When you stand before God, you stand before God blameless. The God who knows everything about you declares you righteous. Sets aside your sin. Makes you His child. Sees you as one of His righteous ones. Now with that, the joy of that. And we get a little glimpse of this, don't we, when we, we've done, we, we've had some relational difficulty, and we we finally get it worked out with a friend that that things have been crossways with, and we and we, we, you know, it's kept us up at night, and we we finally get to talk with them, and and we're able to work it out, and and the friend gives you a big hug and says, you know, I forgive you, and and hey, when can we do lunch next? The sense of release of that is. It's hard to calculate that level of joy. Now think about that friend being God. And that the release is not just for next week and next month till you mess up the next time. It's forever. This is the joy of forgiveness. Live this fellowship of joy. Third, the joy of divine life. And this is that we are children born of God, First John three one and two. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So we don't we don't have the full experience. We haven't entered into our inheritance yet, but we are God's children. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him sinless, immortal, because we shall see Him as He is. First John 3.10, by this it is evident that we are children of God, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. First John 5, one. everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him by the work of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our faith in Christ, our deeds of love and righteousness, love for God and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ mark us as having been born of God. We are His spiritual children, His born ones, His spiritual DNA now courses through us and dictates how we operate, how we think, our lives display that transformation that he alone has brought to our souls. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was a leader of the Jews, he was a teacher, he, he was, he was well-respected, and yet he was seeking the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to have life from God if you're going to be part of the kingdom. And this is what God has granted to us. This is why we believe. This is why we're able to do righteousness. This is what drives our love for the brothers and sisters because we are family members. We can sing, I'm no longer a slave of sin. I am a child of God. So today, and tomorrow, and the next day, and every day till you see Jesus, remind yourself of your family connection to God and His people. Revel in the fact that you are a child of God. View all of life Every part of what happens on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, the things that go right and the things that go wrong, don't forget that you are a child of God working through this world. It's a world that doesn't know him. It's a world full of pitfalls and difficulties. But you are a child of God. You're not alone. Don't live your life as an orphan. Live in the joy of being born of God. The joy of divine life. Four, we have the joy of abiding. Abiding in God and God's abiding in you. Remember the way John put it in 1 John 2? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So this is rooted in the foundation. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide, remain, stay in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, referring to the Holy Spirit, that you have no need, you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, Just as He has taught you, abide in Him. 1 John 3, 24, whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. 1 John 4, 13 to 15, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify there's that word again that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world whoever confesses that jesus is the son of god god abides in him and he in god there is an indissolvable link between our faith in god the son the savior jesus christ and the holy spirits abiding in us those who truly believe in jesus as the divine Savior sent by God the Father into the world, are anointed with the Spirit of God and are thus empowered to keep God's commandments. They don't want to run away. They abide. They stay. They keep close to God. And what John is teaching us about faith and living builds upon what Jesus taught his disciples. And and much that John is teaching in this epistle, it It's phrased in ways that remind us of the the things that Jesus said. In John 15, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. You might as well go to that grape arbor, where you see those little tiny green grapes that are just just starting, okay? Cut the branch off, water it all you want, but cut off from the vine, those grapes will never mature, it'll never bear. You can't live the Christian life cut off from Jesus. The anointing and indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the means by which we abide in God and He in us. The fruitfulness of our lives comes from our abiding in Him and He in us. That's why Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. It's different from hanging ornaments on a Christmas tree. This is apples or peaches growing on a living tree, and the fruit comes from life. It's not just ornamentation. This is not about your adding something more to your to do list so that you seem more righteous. This is about your getting closer to God so that His life flows through you and produces in you what you can't produce on your own. We tend toward trying to fix our lives by adding this or subtracting that. God says, draw close to me. Abide in me and I in you. Then you'll be motivated. Then you'll have the power to live godly lives. Godly living flows from closeness to God. It's living out who you really are because of your living connection to God Himself. And this is consistent with what all the New Testament teaches, all of Scripture teaches. In Romans 1, as Paul lays out the indictment against mankind, where, where the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, he, he demonstrates that unrighteousness, failure to keep God's law, comes from ungodliness, failure to treat God as God. My sin problem. Is rooted in a worship problem. I must get right with God. I must get close to God. I, I have to let Him cleanse me and give me life. Treasure Him. Love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Worship and adore you adore Him. And when you do, your love for sinning dies. And your love for doing right grows strong. we look at the boxes, we check off the list, and God says, get close to me. I will clean you up. I will enable you to be a fruitful Christian. So on a day-by-day basis, what are the ways that you make staying close to God your highest priority? And, and I say highest because if you don't have this, you've got nothing. You, you've got to have this abiding. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. So, so what that means is it's easy, it's easy for us to compartmentalize. It's easy for us to leave God in the pew. It's easy for us to leave God maybe at our time of devotions. Look, stay close to God all day long. Abide in Him. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Number five, we have the joy of loyal obedience. John describes this in various ways, like walking in the light or keeping his commands or keeping his word, practicing righteousness, purifying yourself. First John 2, by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, so you're treasuring them, you're guarding them with a view toward obeying them. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Notice John is weaving together all these themes. 1 John 3 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And knowing God and being born of God, trusting in Jesus Christ to save him from sin and Satan, these spiritual traits spawn righteous living. Or as John phrases it, walking in the light, keeping his word and commands, practicing righteousness, purifying yourself. It's our joy to live this way. It pleases us. It's our pleasure. It makes us happy to live this way. This is the the change of disposition that happens when you have life from God is you actually, you want, he's not the big cosmic bully in the sky, hemming you in. He's, he's your shepherd and your guide, and you're saying, what should I do? And I want to do what you want me to do, because I know you have my best interest in heart. I know, I know that what you design is the perfect way. We've come to realize that sinning brings guilt, shame, and sorrow, and pain. Only a fool would want to fill his or her life with such suffering. Instead, we want to experience all the joy we can attain by living life as God designed it to be lived. This this is our whole way we take on life. It was really helpful last week. As J.D. talked about, the present tense uh, does not sin. Literally, Christians don't sin. And he explained that this is like a, a family rule or pattern, the way we do things. Like, in our family, we tell the truth. Well, does that mean that nobody ever lies? No, what it means is that, that in our family, we tell the truth, and therefore, when someone lies, we're going to deal with it. That, that the general pattern, the normal pattern, is telling the truth. Now, fools treat sin lightly. Believers, on the other hand, are on top of it. They engage in holy war against sin. And, you know, lots of people engage in unholy war against sin, the sin of other people. You notice that? But believers engage in holy war against their own sin. It's not about proving that you're better than other people. It's about humbly admitting, confessing, what needs to get right before God? Because you don't want that barrier there. You want the forgiveness. You want the freedom. This has been offered to you in Christ. Why go back to slavery? So we have this joy of loyal obedience. I thought about calling it just obedience, but the loyal part is that this, is, this comes from the heart. We, we want to do what's right before God. And then there's the joy of love and the two are closely aligned. We're loved by God. We love God, and we love His children. And this naturally follows because love fulfills the law. This follows the the living righteously. The commandments express love for God and love for others, and therefore love fulfills the law. 1 John 3, 16 to 18, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That doesn't mean we go kill ourselves on a cross. He gives an example of what it means. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, the way we give ourselves to the brothers is, look, when we see a need, we meet it, just like Jesus saw our even greater need and met it, even though it meant his death to do it. First John 4 In verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love is self sacrificing. Sin is self centered. Righteousness is self sacrificing. Love makes us happy to sacrifice for God and for others. It expresses God's very life abiding in us, it's intensely practical. It's the hallmark of those who truly belong to God. If love fulfills the law, then hatred is the essence of sin. Self-centered hatred for God and for others is what's marring this world and twisting it. It, it harms others. It's the polar opposite of joy and of goodness. Somehow human beings instinctively know this. Nothing is more attractive to us than to love And to be loved. What so many fail to realize is that God himself is love, and when we turn from him, we lose love, the very treasure for which our hearts were made. Love for a person makes whatever you sacrifice for them a joy. Think about the people you love most and how good it makes you feel to give to them. Love gives love is a joy to receive to know someone loves you and and you know it's not just talk and love is a joy to give and so in what ways as we go on from here can you show love to those within your reach if you want to live in this fellowship of joy you must spend your days Loving people, loving God, it brings great joy. Think about, think about the people in this congregation who love you because God loves them. It ought to be a fellowship of love. And finally, there's the joy of confidence. Confidence in the judgment, and that's future and in prayer, that's present. First John two twenty eight. now little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. In 1 John 3, by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. 1 John 4, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he, as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So God's love reaches its intended goal. That's what perfected means. It reaches its intended goal when it flows out through our lives in practical ways. That's what perfect love is. Perfect love is not you love perfectly. Perfect love is that God's love has been perfected. It's reaching its goal in you when His love has created love in you that now flows out in practical ways. And when love flows from us this way, we have all the confirmation we need that we truly belong to God, that His eternal life is in us, and that we have no condemnation to dread. There is no longer fear of divine judgment, we know we are safe because we are experiencing the change that God has brought into our life, the change that His love has spawned in us. And in that relationship of safety with the God who knows us better than anyone else and loves us more than anyone else, we have bold confidence to bring to Him our request. We have the joy of praying not only for our own needs, but also for the needs of others. Even as God chooses to use our proclamation of the gospel to bring the gift of life to others, he uses our prayers to do the same thing. The power is his. The privilege is ours. We receive whatever we pray for that conforms to his will. Only a fool would want what does not match his will. We become His instruments of light in a world of darkness, servants of the Savior to rescue servants of the devil. Someone has said there's an inexpressible comfort in being safe with a person. And that's infinitely so when that person is God, your creator, your sustainer, your Redeemer, your Shepherd, your Friend. If you are in Christ, you will never know the horror of hearing Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. Instead, you live in the company of the one who's with you all the days and he'll never forsake you or leave you. In all the afflictions and aspirations of this life, you are not alone. You can freely call on him, and he will answer you. There is great joy in that confidence. Not only that at the end you're going to be okay, but knowing that right now you have him at your side the joy of confidence. So my prayer for us is that God would help us live this fellowship of joy from this day forward, the joy of certainty, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of divine life, the joy of loyal obedience, the joy of abiding, the joy of love, and the joy of confidence. May this life be ours. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your stunning gifts, lavishly poured out on us through Jesus Christ. God, may we revel in your goodness, in your grace, in your generosity and find joy in experiencing these things that you have given to us who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, sent to be the Savior of the world. For it's in Christ's name we pray.